Are you a graduate student in theology, philosophy, or a related field seeking employment? The Thomistic Institute is seeking a part-time research assistant to support the scholarly work of our Fall 2023 McDonald Agape Visiting Scholar, Professor Adam Idle of the University of Dallas. Professor Idle's research focuses on Christian moral theology, particularly in the Thomistic and Dominican traditions. The ideal candidate will be presently enrolled in or have completed a graduate degree program in theology, philosophy, or a related field, and have a reading knowledge of Latin, French, and or German. The assistantship begins immediately and concludes on Friday, December 15th, 2023. Candidates must be available for up to 20 hours of work per week. To apply, please submit a CV or resume by email to thomisticinstitute at dhs.edu. That's thomisticinstitute at dhs.edu. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. It's great to have you all here, as Father Jonas said. It's really a wonderful few people to join us. We're very happy to have you, but it's it's wonderful for you to have such an opportunity to step apart from your normal life and be with God in a special way for a few hours, for a few days. So, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you, especially to talk about such a significant topic, what we're really going to talk about as the mystery of our salvation, passion and the sacred wounds. The starting point of this retreat, and we could say really the starting point of the entire economy of salvation, God's whole plan for saving us, the starting point is suffering, the great and terrible reality of human suffering. We all suffer in many, many ways. And our suffering naturally calls out for a remedy, an antidote, a solution. We naturally seek deliverance. From our suffering. To understand this problem of human suffering a little more, we can begin by considering that human suffering can be divided into two basic categories we're going to keep returning to in these first two talks. First, there are things that we suffer from injuries inflicted upon us, things that are not as they should be goods that we're deprived of. All of these injuries or defects or privations constitute this first category of suffering. Things that we suffer from, which are different from the second category, the sufferings that we bring upon ourselves by our own evil actions. Here we're talking about sin, personal sin, and all of the sufferings that sin brings in its wake, ultimately the suffering of eternal death. The wages of sin is death. These two basic kinds of suffering, the things we suffer from, 
and the suffering that we create, you could say, by our own evil action. These really point us to a deeper theological reality about the connection between suffering and evil. All human suffering is caused by evil. All human suffering is caused by evil. So this distinction that we've just made about kinds of suffering is really, fundamentally, it's a distinction between two kinds of evil. There are evils suffered, the things we suffer from, but which we are not culpable for, the injuries, the defects, the privations that we are subject to, that afflict us, especially in our fallen state, but which are not of our own making. That's the first category, evils suffered. But then there's also the category of evils committed. These are the evils that we are tragically the authors of. Sins that we voluntarily commit, which bring temporal and at times even eternal suffering upon us. So, more precisely, we could say that the ultimate problem that God responds to in his gracious gift of salvation is the problem of evil, not simply suffering, but the heart of it, we're dealing with the problem of evil, which includes evils suffered and evils committed. So if this is our starting point, this is our great problem, evil and all of the suffering that it brings into our lives, the all-important question for us to consider is how do we move from suffering to healing? What is the answer to the problem of evil and human suffering? God's answer to this problem is as shocking as it is unexpected. The divine remedy for human evil and suffering is wounds. Christ's wounds. Sacred wounds. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. This is on the front page of your handout. Prophet Isaiah foretelling the suffering servant, Jesus, who would come to save God's people from evil and suffering. Isaiah says, Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him like a shoot from the parched earth. He had no majestic bearing to catch our eye, no beauty to draw us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, knowing pain. Like one from whom you turn your face, spurned, and we held him in no esteem. Yet, it was our pain that he bore our sufferings, he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our sins, crushed for our infirmity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds, we were healed. <coughs> our retreat this weekend 
is about this great mystery of our salvation. About God's sublime wisdom for our salvation hidden in a mystery. God's plan to save man from all suffering and from every evil by the passion and the sacred wounds of the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. The passion and the sacred wounds. This is the mystery of salvation that we're going to consider in this retreat in two parts. You see it outlined there, bottom of the first page of your handout. The first part of our retreat focuses on the mystery of our salvation in the life of grace, meaning here and now, the movement from suffering to healing as it is played out here and now by grace, by Christ's saving gift and our sharing in that gift. And so the first two conferences, tonight and tomorrow morning, are entitled By His Wounds We Are Healed and By Our Wounds We Are Healed. The second part of the retreat then will shift our focus to the mystery of salvation in the life of glory. If the first half of the retreat is about the movement from suffering to healing, the second half is about the movement from healing to glory. Because it is ultimately the life of glory in the kingdom of heaven that we are destined for, made for. And as St. Paul says to the Romans, the sufferings of this present time are as nothing compared to the glory to be revealed to us. We can't begin to imagine what that glory will be like. St. John writes, what we shall be in glory has not yet been revealed. But we do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In glory we will see Christ as he is, with his sacred wounds, eternally marking his glorified body. And in glory we will be like him. Father Andrew Hofer is going to explore these beautiful mysteries in third and fourth conferences of our retreat, entitled His Glorified Wounds and Our Glorified Wounds. So that's our plan for the retreat. These tremendous, these great mysteries that we're going to contemplate are mysteries that you could contemplate for a lifetime, and indeed they are mysteries that you will contemplate eternally when you see God face to face. This weekend, in an atmosphere of prayer, of quiet with the Lord, our goal is simply to begin to consider this tremendous mystery of our salvation that is revealed and made present to us in the passion and the sacred wounds of Jesus Christ. So, first conference. By his wounds we are healed. St. Paul, the first and the greatest theologian in the Christian tradition, offers us a wonderful starting point for considering the mystery of salvation. St. Paul teaches that the mystery of salvation centers around the notion of poverty. He writes to the Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, he became poor for your sake, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The grace, the gracious act, the gift of God given to us in Jesus Christ is the gift of holy poverty. A poverty that will make us rich. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus Christ took upon himself our poverty and our wounds, so that by his holy poverty, by his sacred wounds, we might find a saving remedy. We might be made rich, healed in and through him. The point is simply this, that in Jesus Christ, God enters into the very depths of man's deepest problems in order to offer man a divine solution, the only solution, to man's inescapable and hopeless predicament. And God does this by becoming poor, by being wounded with our wounds. In this first conference, we're going to consider the poor Christ as the mystery of our salvation. How does Christ become poor in order to fill us with his riches? There are two movements here, two fundamental ways in which Christ becomes poor, which correspond very well to the two kinds of evil and suffering that we considered a few moments ago. First, the word becomes flesh. Christ becomes poor in the incarnation by taking our wounded human nature upon himself, ultimately in order to heal that nature and fill it with his divine riches. This poverty of the incarnation is ordered to the healing of evils suffered by man, that first category, the things that afflict us, the sufferings that we bear. The poverty of the incarnation is ordered to healing those wounds, ultimately. But Christ goes even further, emptying himself completely, becoming radically poor in his passion and death in order to heal man from the greatest of all evils, from his sin, from the evil that man himself has committed. So let's begin with the poverty of the incarnation. In considering the incarnation here, we're not simply talking about the fact that the Word became flesh, the second person of the Holy Trinity assumed a human nature, We're speaking specifically about this mystery as a mystery of poverty. St. Paul puts it profoundly in his letter to the Philippians, his famous song, his famous canticle in the second chapter of that letter. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God. Rather, he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance.
grace. Or to put it another way, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich with all of the riches of the divine nature, he became poor, taking upon himself our nature for our sake, so that by that holy poverty we might become rich. The point is that in taking on human nature, in the word becoming flesh, Christ takes on not only a limited, finite, creaturely nature, he also takes on a wounded human nature. A nature that has been wounded by many evils suffered. And indeed, in taking on such a nature, he too becomes susceptible to wounds. God makes himself vulnerable to being wounded in the word made flesh, in the assumption of our poor human nature. Why? Why does Christ become so poor, why does he take our wounded nature upon himself? Firstly, to be with us in our poverty. The promise of Emmanuel is the promise of a God who is with us, radically with us. God has fulfilled this promise in a way and to a degree that we could have never even asked for or imagined. God becomes poor. Firstly, to be with us in our poverty, in our pain, in our suffering. God becomes poor in Jesus Christ so that the poor are not alone in their distress. God is here with us in those depths. But Christ becomes poor not simply to be with us in our poverty, but ultimately to heal us from that poverty, to save us from our suffering, ultimately to make all things new, to make us perfectly like himself. In God's sublime wisdom hidden in a mystery, this making of all things new in us comes about Christ emptying himself, taking our wounded condition entirely upon himself so that he might heal it and save it from within. Mysteriously, marvelously, wondrously, his holy poverty becomes our remedy. He becomes poor for us that we might be made rich through his poverty. Now the mystery of how we become rich by entering into his poverty is what we're going to consider tomorrow in our second conference. For the moment, let's just conclude this first point of our consideration of the mystery of salvation in the poor Christ. Thinking here about poverty of the incarnation. Let's conclude this first point by considering the poverty of the Incarnation by way of an image. The image of the desert. 
God, in the person of Jesus Christ, leaves the promised land, that is heaven, and enters the desert of this world, this land of exile, in order to find man, save man. In emptying himself and becoming poor in the incarnation, Christ enters the desert, the place of radical emptiness, barrenness, poverty. In comparison to heaven, the promised land, this land of exile is precisely a desert, a place of utter poverty and desolation. This is where Christ goes. This is where he descends to in order to find man, to meet man, to save man. One of the very first things that we hear in the Gospels is that Jesus goes into the desert. Immediately after being baptized, he goes into the desert. Having first entered into the desert of our wounded human nature, in the poverty of the incarnation, Christ then literally goes into the Judean desert and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights as a kind of commencement of his redeeming work. He goes into the Judean desert to enter even more deeply into the poverty of being hungry, of being thirsty, of being alone being afflicted, being tempted. He enters into these depths in order to take all of that poverty upon himself. As the prophet Isaiah foretold of the suffering servant, he was a man of suffering, knowing pain. Yet it was our pain that he bore. Our sufferings he endured. All of this Christ does in order that he might meet us in the desert of our poverty. That we might be able to go there and encounter him in the depths of our wounds, of our pain, of our suffering. Christ is there already waiting to meet us, to love us, to save us. So in this twofold movement of the mystery of our salvation, our Lord begins his journey into our poverty in the incarnation, entering into the desert of this land of exile. But his journey does not end in the desert. His journey ends on the mountain. Christ takes on the poverty of wounded human nature in the incarnation in order to heal us from the evils that we suffer from. But it is ultimately the evils that we commit, our sins and all of their terrible consequences that we need to be healed of, saved from. And so for this reason, Christ leaves the desert and ascends the mountain of Calvary where he bore our sins in his own body. He bore our sins in his own body, so that by his wounds we might be healed. 
St. Paul says to the Colossians, We were dead in our transgressions. Christ brought us to life along with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, obliterating the bond against us with its legal claims, which was opposed to us. He removed it from our midst, nailing it to the cross. As Isaiah prophesied, he was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole, that by his wounds we would be healed. This is the height of God's sublime wisdom, hidden in a mystery. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not deem equality to God. Rather, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance. But not only this, not only does he take on our poor nature in the incarnation, he empties himself completely. In his passion and death. Paul continues in that song to the Philippians. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. This complete kenosis, self-emptying, of the God-man is the height, the fullness of the holy poverty of the poor Christ which is meant to make us rich. And it's a poverty, it's a self-emptying that is made manifest to us most radiantly in the sacred wounds of the one who was wounded for our sake. So we might ask, and it's an important question, one we're often faced with in the concrete realities and struggles of our lives. In the face of our real suffering, in the face of our wounds, in the face of our sins, where do we find the cause of our hope? The reason for our hope. In the face of all of that evil, where is hope to be found? The answer is in the sacred wounds of the poor Christ. I lived in Rome for a few years when I was doing my doctoral studies, and while I was there, I had several opportunities to visit the Sistine Chapel. Whenever someone would come to town to visit, they would always want to go to see the Sistine Chapel, and so I would happily take them. One time a friar was visiting, and I went with him to the Sistine Chapel, and he had the brilliant idea of wanting to purchase the headset with recorded narration of the whole of the Vatican Museums. Being the uh, cynical person that I am, I was quite sure that this would be an entire waste of 18 euros, but we purchased the headsets uh, and listened to some of this narration. And when we got to the Sistine Chapel itself, and I sat there against the wall listening to this narration, I was very surprised. The narrator traced the progression of Michelangelo's nine panels on the ceiling. We've seen pictures, famous creation scene, other scenes in these nine panels on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. 
But the narrator points out that what is really depicted there is in fact a very dark story. Yes, you have the wonderful creation scenes, but after that, everything that follows is the story of fallen creation, depictions of the first sin, the banishment of Adam and Eve from the garden, the depravity of the human race, the flood that followed upon it, the drunkenness and disgrace of Noah. That's where the ceiling ends. Noah's drunken disgrace. One chapter after another of creation gone wrong. And even Michelangelo's other tremendous work in the Sistine Chapel on the altar wall, the final judgment scene, is from one perspective dominated by a real sense of foreboding with such graphic depictions of damnation and eternal punishment. In the midst of all of this dark story unfolding in Michelangelo's ceiling and final judgment scene, the narrator asks this question about one of the most famous rooms in the world. Where, in the midst of all of this darkness, is the cause of our hope? Graphic depictions of humanity turned against God. Where do we find, in this seemingly endless rebellion of man against God, and in the damnation that is the only just consequence of that rebellion, where do we find the reason for our hope of salvation. Now, at this point, I'm completely engrossed in this narration, holding on to this blessed headset while <laughs> hundreds of tourists are milling about and the security guards are yelling, Silencio, no photo, silencio, <laughs> every two minutes. I'm waiting to hear the answer from the narrator to this pressing question. And finally, the narrator reveals Michelangelo's real genius, his, you might say, theological genius in the Sistine Chapel. This artistic genius knew the problem that he was setting up by depicting fallen humanity and damnation in such bold relief. And he knew that the person of faith would be looking for an answer to this problem. But Michelangelo's answer is almost too obvious to notice. So obvious it's easily missed if it's not pointed out to you from an 18-year-old headset. So the narrator said, step back and look at the whole of the room again, as if you're seeing it for the first time. Step back, and what do you see above all else? On that ceiling, that wall, what is it that you see above all else? And the answer becomes very obvious. You see flesh, body, one body after another in beautiful human flesh. Michelangelo was a sculptor, after all. You have almost three-dimensional bodies hanging off the ceiling, jumping out of the altar wall. He played to his greatest strength when he painted these panels. He filled them with the human form a sculpture-like representation of one human body after another, perfect in shape and form, as if the flesh of these bodies was stirring with life. And then you see 
in the midst of all of this flesh, you see presiding over the final judgment scene the flesh of the God-man. Jesus Christ in our flesh, wounded. That wounded flesh is the answer, the cause of our hope. You have all of the fallen flesh of depraved humanity on full display. And then the shocking truth that God has taken this flesh upon himself, made himself to be one of us, wounded for our sake, so that in him we find the bridge between humanity and divinity, between man and God. Michelangelo's answer to the long, desperate story of fallen human nature is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that he might bear our sins in his own body and save us through his wounds. The second century theologian, Tertullian, put it this way, Caro Cardo salutis. The flesh is the hinge of salvation. Caro. Flesh. Cardo. Hinge. Salutis. The flesh is the hinge of salvation. Our flesh. God has no flesh. He is pure spirit. Our flesh, which Christ took upon himself in the incarnation, in which he suffered and died for our sake, this is what our salvation hinges upon, and therefore it is the blessed reason for our hope. Christ's wounds in our flesh are the source, the cause of our reconciliation with God. Christ does not forgive us for his wounds. Christ forgives us from his wounds. They are the source. The sacred wounds are the very font of his divine forgiveness, from which, as we read so movingly in the account of the Passion, from which blood and water flow after a spear is thrust into Christ's side. From those sacred wounds, salvation flows. Blood and water flow as the spring of our salvation. It remains for us to consider in our next conference the very important question of how we are invited to enter into this great mystery of salvation. How we are called to be poor with Christ in the desert, to become even poorer with Christ on the mountain of Calvary. How Christ wishes to heal us by our wounds, in union with his. That we will take up tomorrow morning. But of first importance, we must continue to contemplate, to consider this mystery in Christ himself to consider God's plan for our salvation as it took flesh in the poverty of the Incarnation 
as it was brought to completion in the kenosis, the complete self-emptying of the passion and death of the one who became poor for our sake, so that by his poverty we might be made rich, the one who was pierced for our sake, so that by his wounds we might be healed. We have a little time for questions, for discussion. Any thoughts about this mystery of salvation? In Christ? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I guess my question is just, could you expand a little bit more um, about like the way that Christ takes on our fallen flesh um, and the connection to original sin? Because obviously that's not... Yes. Okay, good. So, uh, <laughs> let me see if I remember it now. Uh, so you asked about how Christ takes on our poverty... Yeah, our fallen flesh. Our fallen flesh, with, with and how, how that relates to the to original sin. Yeah. Okay, good. So original sin is a very important piece here uh, of all of this. The first man sins, and all of humanity suffers the consequences of those sins at different levels. The greatest consequence is that we are cut off from God. Friendship with God is destroyed, and... The whole kind of ordering of our lives is undone because our relationship with God is destroyed. All right. But there are also other sufferings that come into our lives for original sin. Now, this gets a little technical. Uh, Those two categories of evil that I mentioned, evils that we suffer from, evils that we commit, uh, St. Thomas's actual terms here for these two categories are malum Pene and malum culpe. Malum pene, evil is malum. Pene means punishment. This first category is technically called the evil of punishment. This is a little uh, nuanced because the evils that we suffer from are all, in some way or another, punishment for sin. Not necessarily punishment. They are not, first and foremost, punishment for our own personal sin. They come about because the order that God creates has been violated by the first sin. And that order, the violation of that order, and the the restoration of justice that that violation entails requires punishment. So every human being suffers in different ways in punishment for original sin. Now, it's important not to think of this as a kind of juridical, you know, you're being punished. If you were a classic example of malum pene, an evil suffered is blindness. If you're born blind, you're not being punished for your own sin. Jesus makes this clear in the gospel. It's not because of this man's sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind. But it is because of someone's sin. It's because of the first sin. It's because this order with God was destroyed And therefore, disorder enters creation at all levels, and we suffer from that. So, when we consider Christ taking on our human nature now, Christ receives human nature from the Blessed Virgin Mary, who was preserved from original sin. So, in one sense, Christ takes on an integral human nature, but because of his mission, you might say, of becoming 
poor for our sake, being wounded for our sake, Christ wills to take upon himself many of the punishments that belong to corrupted human nature. He willingly takes many of those upon himself, even though the human nature he received from the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, was intact human nature. He wills to subject himself. Now, the one thing he doesn't subject himself to is the kind of interior disordering that leads to sin. But the sufferings, injuries, defects, he wills to experience those, to know those. And he certainly wills to know the reality of temptations, part of his purpose for going into the desert. As the, as the letter to the Hebrews says so powerfully, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He has been tempted in every way, so he knows these realities, not as an outsider, an observer, but one who entered into these mysteries without in any way sinning or being blind to sin. So uh, there are different things going on here with original sin, penalties for original sin, with the exception, um, but ultimately uh, Christ chooses to subject himself to many of the wounds that are part of our fallen condition. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yes. So the statement, uh, and this is from the first letter to St. Peter. Yes, the statement, he bore our sins in his own body. Uh, what does that mean? He bore our sins in his own body. So what St. Peter is saying here is literally uh, that Christ received wounds that were the punishment for our sin. Uh, you might think of sin here, when Peter says he bore our sins, think of it in the broader sense of he bore the reality of evil and especially its consequences. Evil, one cannot sin against God without any consequence. God who is supreme, who is supremely just, uh, who is supremely offended by sin, uh, cannot be sinned against without, with, with no consequence whatsoever. So all sin has consequence. Justice has to be restored in some way. Christ took all of that upon himself. So he bore the punishment, like Isaiah says, in his body. He suffered in place of us. To be a pleasing offering to the Father. So uh, you might think of sin in that phrase, he bore our sins in his own body, as the, the broadest reality here of the evil that man has done and the consequences, the eternal consequences of that, which, uh, and, the, and the, uh, the cry for the restoration of justice that evils bring about in, before God. He took, he literally uh, suffered to the point of death for all of that because uh, we, if we simply suffered the consequences of our sin, we would be damned. It's that graphic depiction of the final judgment scene in the Sistine Chapel depicts so vividly. Other questions? Yes. I feel like I hear a lot of talk now about 
Mm. Oh, I see. Okay, so uh, the question is about emotional wounds in addition to physical wounds, wounds, and you're specifically talking about Jesus's wounds. Yeah. We want to think about Jesus's wounds. By his wounds, we are healed, uh, as including this emotional interior category. Um, so Jesus's suffering is certainly both exterior and interior. And his greatest suffering is interior. Uh, the, the suffering he bears in his body is as nothing compared to the reality in his mind, knowing the full truth, full horror of sin, and in his free choice to take that upon himself. Uh, that is a, is a far graver reality. Now, the level of the motions is a bit of a deeper level. Um, Christ, you know, as the Gospels tell us, Christ was sorrowful unto death as he's approaching his passion. So it's, we certainly, and he had a perfectly integrated soul. So these realities affecting his, his mind, his will certainly overflowed, you might say, into his emotions, um, affected his emotions, but not perhaps in the way that we're often affected by emotion such that we can be so overwhelmed by emotion that our, our higher powers, our mind, our will, are, are you know, almost frozen because we're so moved by emotion. Christ was entirely rightly ordered. So maybe, I don't know, maybe we wouldn't think about this as kind of welling up firstly within his emotions, but as the realities that he knows in his mind and chooses his will as overflowing, as redounding, that reality encompassed his soul. So he was sorrowful, but knowing the truth of Peter's denial in his intellect would have been a far greater weight to bear than a feeling, you know, of sorrow at that. That's a, a consequence of it, but one way to think about it. You obviously don't want to say that so yes. there's like this internal yes. level yes. that's not Right, that's yes. That, that's firstly about knowing the truth. Uh, and knowing the truth perfectly does imply then feeling different ways, you know, all, feeling all different kinds of things in the face of the realities that he could have known, he would have known so perfectly through and through. He couldn't have been dispassionate about such knowledge. You know. Other questions? Yes? Um. God in his infinite knowledge, obviously, well, I mean, but is it safe to say that he knew before the incarnation? Yes. And then the incarnation is more for us. We recognize restoring that face-to-face with God, but he already knew that. So the question is, uh, God knows all things from eternity, uh, and the incarnation is not for the sake of God coming to know our wounds, is that right? But for the sake of, it's for our sake. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The incarnation is most absolutely for our sake, for our salvation. Not that God had to go to such lengths to save us. He could have saved us in any way conceivable, but he chose to go to such lengths, and we can think about, you know, why it's so fitting, especially here considering his wounds, why it's so 
marvelously, wondrously fitting and how it makes possible for us, gives us the hope, the confidence that we can approach him, that, you know, Hebrews talks about because we have this high priest who has come, who knows our weaknesses through and through, we can approach him with confidence. So, yes, the incarnation is for our sake, uh, for him to associate himself so much with our condition that we can have that complete confidence of abandoning ourselves to him. Because as we're going to talk about tomorrow, you know, our own following him all the way, Calvary, this gets very difficult. Uh, and so the plan, God bless you, that he has unfolded itself gives us such great reason for hope and confidence to keep following. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes. Uh, you were saying uh, how Jesus' uh, internal suffering was you know, worse than his external <clears throat> suffering. Um, so then does that mean like his suffering in the agony of the garden, would that be worse than even his obedience to death? Okay, so the question is about Jesus' internal and exterior suffering, and would his internal suffering, Garden of Gethsemane, be worse than his external suffering on Calvary? Yeah, you know, like uh, him being, yeah, like uh, mm-hmm. somebody for that. Mm-hmm. In one way, I don't know, in one way we can think about, you know, kind of the whole passion as one movement. In one sense, you know, uh, he, he celebrates the memorial of his passion with his disciples and he goes to the garden. All of this is, it's why uh, liturgically when we celebrate the sacred Trit- triduum, Holy Thursday, Easter Sunday, and in one sense, liturgically, it's really considered kind of one thing, one reality. Um, So maybe we don't want to separate so completely what happened in the garden from Calvary. But uh, in any case, certainly on Calvary, the interior sufferings he experienced then, which he even gives voice to in quoting Psalm 22, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He look upon himself that interior reality of the alienation that sin brings about. Certainly his interior suffering on Calvary is of a far higher order than physical suffering, which, you know, it's not too difficult to understand. Think about your own life. Uh, I mean, what can be done to the body is, you know, horrible. I mean, the kinds of bodily suffering we can endure is horrible, but the kind of agony that you can experience in your soul and the kind of agony that in theory, could just go on and on and on. Bodily suffering has to come to an end at some point. Uh, but because we have this intellect made for perfect truth and this will made for eternal good, uh, when we suffer profoundly with regard to knowing some terrible evil or having to, to bear some horrible evil, uh, that can endure far greater. So. Um, yeah, I don't know, uh, you know, in terms of the agony in the garden, it's uh, perhaps the beginning, you know, of that interior suffering that comes to its culmination on Calvary, knowing what is to come. But it's there that uh, the Gospels tell us he was sorrowful unto death. Sorrow is something happening in the soul. It's not about bodily pain. Yes. Last question. Last question. Okay. I just wanted to talk a little bit about this, the 
this poverty in relation? Mm. Poverty in relation to the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Okay, that's an interesting question. Um, poverty is a very interesting kind of theme in, in St. Paul's theology, especially. Uh, the notion that you know, God's saving plan is, is borne out in such lowly, such a kind of lowly way. So we can certainly think about how the Eucharist, as the greatest sacraments, the summit of all the sacraments, uh, is such a the sacramental sign here to have simple bread and water, uh, bread and wine, excuse me, as the signs of the sacrament. These are such simple, lowly elements to bear the mystery of the body and the blood and soul of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's something very disarming about such simple or poor realities. You know, you see bread, you see wine. Uh, there is a tremendous accessibility to those kinds of very simple, lowly, poor signs. And I think this is very much at the heart of the Incarnation. The accessibility, if you will, of God. God wants to make himself so accessible in a, in a way that's so easy and inviting. Uh, he doesn't stand apart from us or say in the Eucharist, you know, use some external sign that is so magnificent that um, it seems so far beyond our possibility of receiving. Instead, he gives us the most ordinary daily needs, the food we need for our sustenance to be the vehicle, the instrument by which, which will be transformed in order to, uh, to bear the substance of his body and blood. So there is probably a, yeah, a kind of similar ratio, similar idea at work in the fact that the sacraments, all of the sacramental economy uses these very simple, accessible, human, basic signs to say something to us about a tremendous divine gift in reality. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.